0: Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Madam's Cast, in fact the first episode of 2023. There was a rumour set out by myself that was going to change the format of the Madam's Cast and uh, I canvassed some opinion from various supporters and people who contribute via the Patreon page and they said, Tim, it's not broken, don't fix it, we like it the way it is. So I've resisted the urge to reinvent the wheel and tamper with an already working system, and I'm avoiding that, and we're sticking with the original profile and format of The Madam's Cast, which you will all be familiar with, uh, unless you've never listened before, in which case, why on earth are you starting with this episode, although it's going to be a corker? This episode, I am talking to the brilliant Jack Adair Bevan, who hopefully is waiting for me at the other end of the internet. Jack, are you there? I am, I'm here. Wow, you do not sound enthusiastic about being there.
1: <laughs> no, it's very excited, really excited to talk to you.
0: Now, I'm a bit confused because I think you are a foodie, writer, photographer, carpenter, menu designery type chap, who although I've never quite crossed paths with, uh, I know that we've, we've, we've passed like shits in the night at various different places and at various different times. Um, but there seems to be some confusion that you might also be a rock drummer. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I've,
1: I've, got, I've definitely got a namesake, um, Jack Bevan, who's the drummer in the Foles. Um, and um, although I've never been mistaken for him, he's actually been mistaken for me. People have contacted him about cocktail menus and things, which is kind of pretty hilarious because he's got millions <laughs> and millions of followers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no way. I like that. I like the fact that, yeah, you've been mistaken for a rock star. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that vlog. Um, uh, okay. Uh, I'll put that aside for a minute. You've alluded to a bit of cocktail uh, mystery in your, uh, shall we call it a profile or, um, you know, some sort of career pathway that you've had. Can you go back to the beginning? We don't need to know when you were born or where, and we don't necessarily need a day-by-day, you know, what is Jack at there, Bevan do the third day he was alive, but it would be great to get a synopsis from you of who you are and why we're chatting to you today.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. So so I essentially started um quite early on in food. Um when I was in my twenties, I set up a restaurant in Somerset called the Ethicurian with uh three friends in a wall garden. Um, and we kind of built that restaurant up around the the wall garden and all the ingredients that were being grown in there by the gardener Mark. Um and then Working with producers and and um, individuals all around that particular area of Somerset, which is not too far from Bristol, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably that's kind of how we have overlapped. Obviously, when you were at River Cottage, um, we were we were sort of up to up to our thing at the Equurian, and then um, to sort of fast forward the restaurant, yeah, it did it did really well. It was we had a we had a brilliant time um, and wrote a book and did lots of work with various lovely people and Amazing. lots of great people come to the restaurant but um yeah we parted company um i think i can't even bloody remember sorry I'm not like to swear am i uh bloody's well, not swearing I... though yeah you get away <laughs> with the
0: occasional bloody that's, that's just <laughs> in half the name of a cocktail
1: yeah um uh we parted company two um two brothers matt and ian carried on with the restaurant and Paula and i um kind of moved off to do other things and um and yeah you mentioned carpentry i um i ended up sort of taking a sort of short break from food um for a year and a bit and um went and started working for a boat builders in bristol um which in lots of ways sounds a bit kind of a mad and a bit of a departure from what i was doing but it was kind of the business was all centered around the underfull yard which is in um in bristol and it and it was uh it was a guy that was building pilot cutters which were the boats that would race out to kind of guide in the cargo ships, um, Mm -hmm. into places like Bristol and Pill um, and Cardiff and Barry and, uh, and they they were kind of really major boats in kind of, um, the, the industry really bringing in, um, produce to some of the major kind of ports from all over the world, you know, places like America were bringing in these huge cargo ships. So Mm -hmm. it was quite a kind of amazing historic, um, industry to kind of get an insight into and really was just a continuation of my interest in history of food and history of production and and um so yeah kind of kind of kind of did that and then um ended up carrying on working within food and drink and working on kind of consultancy for restaurants and brands and drinks businesses um i'd, I'd ended up with a kind of particular interest and knowledge of vermouth uh, as we were making our own um, vermouth from ingredients that were grown in the garden and foraged ingredients and then and then wine made in in the uk too and um with that uh wrote another book after the esq and cookbook called um a spirited guide to vermouth
0: which is yeah, all about I'm holding a copy here it looks beautiful yeah. obviously i've i've read a little bit and uh I'm, I'm enjoying finding out more about vermouth i would say that was a whole journey for you to go on as well right
1: definitely yeah what the vermouth journey hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah it, it was. I mean, what was so brilliant about kind of my introduction to Vermouth, aperitivo, you know, broader broader terms of, you know, French aperitif and Italian aperitivo was um, was uh, my introduction was kind of to go into restaurants and to speak to people that were serving this in various places. I mean, it worked a lot, a lot, obviously, in Bristol, which is where we were based, but yeah. I was also working with, restaurants like St John and Coi Vardis and um, Cafe Murano with Angela Hartner and, and wow. helping them to train their staff in this kind of category really because at the time when we were when we were making Vermouth it wasn't really that well known. Of course the traditions of vermouth manufacturing go back, you know, nearly like well, a thousand years really, but yeah. Yeah. the um the actual culture in the UK around Vermouth has been, you know, wasn't huge. People were mixing it in drinks, but didn't necessarily know that what they were putting in their drink was vermouth, you know, whether that was in a Negroni yeah. or a martini. Yeah. Um, so we kind of, we rode a real wave um, and a real kind of interest, which I've been really happy to see continue and grow and just morph and change into something altogether different and huge and wonderful. And um, and I think vermouth is so interesting because I think it goes hand hand, hand in hand with with food and food culture and there's something just a little bit more rooted and grounded about it because it has such a um, such a huge part of it is production of herbs and knowledge that goes into kind of herb lore and um, grape varieties and it's just something a little bit more interesting dare I say it than gin. For instance, or... <laughs>
0: Well, you can say <laughs> Sorry, that. No, 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 we've had a couple of gin makers uh, on the <laughs> podcast. And I think, you know, uh, I, I'm, I love the world of gin as well. But I 100% yeah. with you. I think the depth, uh, you know, I mean, if you start with wine rather than a neutral grain spirit, you're already into a more texturally rich place to start with before you begin adding your gentian citrus zest. Wild time, whatever the, the herbs and, and botanicals are that you're going to add to your particular vermouth, and then top it up with. Do they? Um, it's fortified, right? They add a bit of extra uh, spirit to, to stop it re-fermenting. Is that right?
1: Definitely, yeah. De- th- th- there's a few different. I mean, there's a few different techniques about how people go about making it. Um, the vermouth that we make, and there's quite a few manufacturers in the UK using this technique now, is to take you take a base wine, and although it looks often if it's a sweet vermouth or a red vermouth it looks red so it's easy to think that it might be made from um, red wine but th- there are there are drinks out there that are made with uh, red wine there's some french um, fortified red wines like Epinay, I think mm-hmm. um, is a good example but um, you take a you basically take a white, white wine and then some people will distill individual botanicals um, and create a a spirit, which is then added in sort of varying proportions to the base wine, and some people, like us at the Ethicurian, will will do a um, will extract just using a high-proof spirit. So they'll take something, probably in the ninety percent area, um, like a potato vodka we were using from Chase, um, and then they'll uh, add something like gentian that you mentioned, or they might add. Uh, Artemisia absinthium, which is which is kind of uh, wormwood, one yeah. of the wormwoods. There's there's lots yeah. of them. You've got um, you've got all sorts of, sorts of different um, genuses of that of that particular plant, and then um, they would add that again in varying proportions. So there there can be a real like difference basically between um, distilling an ingredient. For example, if you're using a rotavap, which is um, essentially when you distill something within a vacuum, so you can you're boiling something when you when you just sit it and then um, with a when you when you uh, do that in a vacuum you lower the temperature at which you can do that so you can end up with much much more volatile very green fresh flavors um and then if you obviously do that in a traditional still like a pot still it's still great but you are going to end up with very different characteristics um, made.
0: Amazing. So, right, yeah. I feel like we have vanished down a vermouth wormhole, which isn't. Sorry, a bad, yeah, it's easy. It's it's easy a bad yeah. No, no, I I would quite happily um produce a series of podcasts just about vermouth, and I'd like yeah. to do that. Um, and I have certainly enjoy enjoy drinking a bit of vermouth. Uh, it's one of those things that sort of appeals to me. I'm very partial to a vermouth and soda, uh, yeah. be that dry or a sweet vermouth, various different varieties. And and um, you know, we've had some. Some very lovely people on the podcast who all nominate a drink at one point, point. and the lovely Lucy Brazier from River Cottage, who's written their their Christmas book amongst a lot of other stuff. Uh, she actually had Punt M S as her as her go to Desert uh, Island drink, which I think is a sweet vermouth. So, um, there we go. Right, well, I'm going to park vermouth for now. Although I would highly recommend that if anyone was interested in that bit of chat there from Jackie Bevan, they should nip out and get a copy of a spirited guide to Vermouth*, an aromatic journey with botanical notes class oh classic cocktails and elegant recipes uh, which is a, a cracking little book and um although i've only got about a third of the way through it i'm looking forward to reading the rest i'll stick a link in the show notes so that you can go and find it but jack um you're now a novo scotian you're living up here you know you're, new, you're newly scottish should i say a nouveau scotian <laughs>
1: That's right. Yeah, we've, um, well, I should say that my partner grew up um, around here. So I kind of feel like I'm sort of allowed to be called almost half a local um, by uh, by proxy. But um, yeah, we're living in um, a little, um, it's, a, it's definitely a town, really. But we're in the, the old bit of the village, really, in um, Port Soy, in Murray. Well, we're just in Murray, um, yeah. very just slightly in. And um, yeah, not far from Cullen, where obviously the famous Cullen Skink comes from. Love that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. I'm just looking at the view at the moment of the of the sea. It's a nice sunny day, which makes a change. Oh,
0: um, well, it makes a change for this time of year, but don't you worry, my friend, the summer is coming. Yeah. Great! <laughs> You'll be sunburnt. You'll be wondering why you've been awake for twenty hours of the day. Um, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome, and it's—I uh, I can't wait for you to experience the summer here. It's totally cool. Right? Okay, Jack. You have the opportunity coming towards you to change three things about the world of food. Now, they can be deeply serious, well thought-out, ethical things. They could be very helicopter, quite flippant things. They are what they are. They're your choices to change. You're in, if you like, a more malleable universe where simply wishing to change it allows it to be changed. But we'll discuss the reasons that perhaps that change is inhibited in the real world. Um, And we'll talk about each one and try and find an example. Uh, You know, I'm sure you'll give us some good ones. I'll do my best to, to not argue with you. Um, or, or take over and steal your point and make it my own, but you know I'm mm. not making any promises on that point. Are you feeling sort of? Are you feeling kind of ready to do that, Jack? Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. I, uh, I, I think, um, yeah, no, I am, I am, I am. I was just gonna, I was just gonna kind of um, put a disclaimer here that I've got a one-year-old, um, uh, one-year-old little girl, and she just doesn't sleep. <laughs> so, <laughs> My I kind of I, I kind of contradict myself constantly, lose my thread and um don't say what I actually mean to say. So just just as long as you understand that, that's fine. Uh
0: well, my children are thirteen and ten, but I haven't forgotten uh what it was like when they were <laughs> much younger and <laughs> slept a lot less. So I think all can be forgiven. Anyway, let's hope that you sail through this in a lucid state. Um Jack, what is the first thing you want to change about the world of food?
1: Uh, so, yeah, this is this is a tough one. It's, it's a hard, hard, the first one's hard. But um, I think that I would like to change the way that um, we follow so many, I mean, we do this across the world, but follow so many fads. And that might be, um, it might be a food fad in terms of I don't know dirty fries where we cover them in lots of like kind of melted cheese and bits of fried bacon and crispy onions and things although saying that do quite fancy that right now but um <laughs> I would say I'd say yeah food fads but you've got the kind of uh, surface level food fad which is kind of food trends I suppose I would like it if we had more of a i suppose a culture of um not protect not being protectionist of of british food because i think british food is brilliant because in so many ways it takes takes lots of foods from around the world and communities and people that have come and lived in the uk which is fantastic and they've incorporated that into into the food culture of the country and, and i think that's great but i love the way um having traveled in Italy, and particularly spent quite a lot of time in Palermo. Um, how passionate the people of Italy are about particular recipes, and how how they protect those recipes um, from being kind of changed or adapted or kind of ruined in some ways. There are there are there is a sort of trickiness to this because I have also eaten food in in Italy and um, and in Palermo and be cooked it by some really old, lovely. Um, people out in the hills around the around the city and i think oh god i could do with something else you know it's like not quite enough salt in that or i bet it'd be really nice if you added this to it and uh, and i've sort of like tentatively suggested it and had a spatula kind of like thrown (laughs) on my head (laughs) and in some cases i've just been told to leave just told to leave kitchen and when i have tried to cook for anybody who's um from palermo and the areas around palermo they just, they just say that I can't cook because I'm not from there. So, and I love that. I think, I think that's really brilliant. And then the, the, the other thing that I would change within that, because I've said sort of food fads or food trends. Yeah. Um, I would, um, really love it if we didn't sort of oscillate and flip between what's healthy and what isn't healthy. It's really, really doing my head in, particularly things like being told that we're supposed to eat margarine because it's better for us. And in fact, butter tastes so much better, is so much better for us. Um, and in fact, you know, can be produced in a really ethical and kind of uh, a way that um, looks after livestock and looks after the environment, looks after, looks after nature. And um, so when I'm, I'm sort of told that, oh, no, you shouldn't you shouldn't eat this, um, you shouldn't eat butter, you need to eat, you know, you need to use like, I don't know, coconut oil, which has been shipped in or flown in from some far flung place. That 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 really really starts to is like starts to upset me, and I think we just see so much of that now um, yeah. with the we- yeah. with the wellness industry. And um, every five minutes, um, we're not supposed to eat something, and we're supposed to eat something else. And actually, if we look at what we grow in um, in the UK, yeah. and um, I suppose this part of like Northern Europe, um, we've if we went back to what we've. Kind of traditionally eaten, which is you know lots of like lots of greens, lots of good root vegetables, lots of um, lots of offal, um, and uh, you know game, wild meats, and fish, and foraged greens and seaweeds. You could have a really great varied diet. That's really interesting. Um, and in fact, we just constantly just ship stuff in that's supposed to be healthier. And I I just yeah, that doesn't add in.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a conflict, isn't there, between yeah. what, what a healthy diet means for you and what the health food marketing gurus would like you to buy next. And I, I, and I worry about that. I'm with you on that a little bit as well. I think that sort of bridges into the fitness industry where you see guys in the gym and girls in the gym and they're drinking a, a full, balanced diet shake of some sort, and I'm like, what even in you weren't you haven't evolved <laughs> to drink mush from a cup this is not <laughs> this is not how it's supposed to go guys uh and girls so I, yeah, I i'm totally with you on that one i mean the the i think it's worth momentarily burrowing down a little bit into the margarine scenario because i was thinking about that yesterday being part of the vitalite generation that i am what sparked this was There was outrage yesterday uh, across BBC Radio Scotland because um, someone has had the audacity, or the owners of Lilt have had the audacity to rebrand it as Fanta. (laughs) So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, oh, you know, back in the day when we used to enjoy the totally tropical taste as children, and I thought, yeah, these were the Vitalite years. And I remember my mum switching from butter to Vitalite, other other types of um, margarine were available over the years and expressly being told that this was because it was going to be good for our hearts and much better for us. Only to discover at a later age that the oils that they used to hydrogenate to make this stuff, now hydrogenated vegetable fats are not good for you, it turns out after all, um, but the oil, the way they extract it, it's like sunflower oil I think they used in in Vitalite. Now, I recently discovered, stupidly, I thought you got sunflowers and sunflower seeds and you crush them up and. Put them in a centrifuge and the oil came out apparently that's not the case apparently you pulp the whole thing up you wash it with lots of hydrochlorides and then you heat it and this pr- this produces some sort of wax which is then split between oils and waxes and the oil is sold as as high clarity um sunflower oil and then what's left over the waxy bits that are left over are used as vegetable shortening i mean i find that all quite all right. alarming
1: yeah oh absolutely i mean there's just too many (laughs) you can see straight away that there's just too many steps within that and that's just a kind of perfect example of the industrialization of food and also just somebody along the line along the way convincing somebody else because it's more profitable and because it makes bigger companies lots of money that this is a good idea and Mm. uh, and it's just yeah that 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 that's the bit i mean I, i sort of you know joke about food trends or food fads but i think the alarming the alarming um the alarm part of this is is what we're sold like what we're told is healthy and what we're told is a good idea um i think we just need to really sort of scrutinize why are we being told that and who's actually behind this you know it's like it's like with a flora sponsoring the london marathon i mean (laughs) like why (laughs) It's only to do with money isn't it it's got nothing to do with it being a healthy thing to eat to go running um, it's just such, such, mix, such a mixed message for people and, and no wonder people don't know what on earth to eat um, you know me included sometimes like, should I eat that, is that good for me and um, I think uh, interestingly you know talk about the, the gym and wellness industry I think I think one podcast I, I do find absolutely fascinating is, is um, Andrew Huberman's podcast and if you've come across it it's, um, it's, uh, he's, a, he's a, a Stanford professor, he's a neurologist um, but he basically looks at looks at fitness, looks at diet, looks at um, you know how we look after ourselves, and then with um, particular people from his um, from his kind of circle um, circle within um, other uh, other universities, other schools, he'll take papers and kind of like dissect the papers. Uh, they give us the information that we would want to kind of look at. So that might be, um, you know, he does look at things like, you know, whey proteins, things like creatine, which is which comes, you know, is extracted or comes from kind of red meats and fish Mm -hmm. and and those kind of things. I think it's it's actually I want I want more of that. I want more. I want more experts actually looking at other papers that other experts are writing and discussing it rather than celebrating kind of somebody that looks really beautiful. um, That's telling us to do something because there's absolutely no. no basis in in knowledge apart from something that's just you know just an aesthetic, and I think that's da- That's so dangerous, um, and that's m- mostly how people seem to make decisions now. You know, they find somebody that they like on social media and listen to what they've got to say, and often that person, you know, they might have some knowledge, but they certainly aren't qualified to be telling us what to do. Um, and I think, um, yeah, that 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 that's you know that's that's really worrying. Um, really worrying.
0: Well, I've got to be careful because I sort of try and make myself a career out of telling people what to do on social media. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true, actually. And, and actually, it's reflected in the Madam's cast. It's conversational. We always, um, we always make points and we allude to various uh, different bits of literature, uh, uh, but it's always about opening the conversation rather than closing it. So yeah. I, I'm totally with you on that. It's difficult to live in a world of short answers and sound bites. I think, you know, overall, in terms of a healthy diet, needs to be complex and full of lots of different things, relatively well grown, relatively close to you, and your calorie intake either needs to be, you know, matching your calorie output, or slightly less than it if you wanna lose weight. You know, uh, that doesn't doesn't seem like you need to join a, a, a special club to work that out, but you know, there we go. Okay, so we're gonna get rid of silly food <laughs> fat, or, you know, I quite like a dirty fry, I am. I'm sort of with you on that. Okay, as long as as long as they're fried in, in animal fat rather than sunflower oil. Um. So I I, I sort of get you. I, I think there are waves of sort of foodie excitement about stuff that people develop flavors and they get interested in and they pick them up and they play around with Asian flavors or they pick them up and they play around with Mediterranean flavors and those those kind of foodie fads. I think you know they're they're relatively harmless. But I'm totally with you with the sort of, um, with the overview of this kind of got to be changing our diet every four minutes to keep up with the latest advice and actually nutritional science is a really young science it keeps on changing we've evolved in northern europe to eat a certain type of diet or we've evolved with a certain type of diet and yet in the last hundred years that's changed more than it has in the previous thousand. so we're already sort of slightly lost as a starting point so i don't know how anyone can really work out you know exactly where we should be but as you say a much bigger subject than we could possibly Wrap up. I'll go and find that um, that podcast and definitely take a listen to what your man's got to say over at Stanford. Okay, have you got a second thing you'd like to change about the world of food, Jack?
1: I do. I do. I would like. um, I would really love it if we could. um, It's more. I don't know if it's necessarily changing. It's probably introducing something. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would love. I would love it if we could have um, more ceremony and ritual around food and drink and. That that takes into a couple of it takes into account a couple of um, a couple of points, I suppose. The um, ritual element, I really love. At the Ethicurion, they still they still do it, but we set up a Wassail, which is um, West Country. I mean, you get it across England. You don't get get it up here in Scotland, as far as I know. But there might be people that are doing it, and it's a it's an old tradition where you bless the orchard. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, this sort of time of year, maybe a couple of couple of weeks um you know it, it's, it's there's a big window which people do it but it's generally around now um and you bless the orchards, and you have you make lots of rough music which is when you bang like pots and pans and you fire a shotgun um which is supposed to scare away all the evil spirits and yeah. um, you know bring a good crop but within that you have we used to and they still do have um like served this amazing toffee apple cake which was made which is made at the restaurant and we do lots of we um, cook lots of food using using um, ingredients from that time of year, and like there were sometimes you know be, there's obviously apples left over um, yeah. in store um, from that harvest, and um, it essentially brought to, brought people together um, around a single ingredient you know that's been grown on the land that you're celebrating it on, um, and it also kind of uh, looks back at at that ritual which which is taking place hopefully every year for like you know the last few hundred years Mm -hmm. Um, and I think bringing people together around food but also then having a party around it but something that has to a certain extent like a set of like repeatable ritual or guidelines or I just just really love that that you can almost kind of um, you can chart your life with these celebrations and so you know you've got you've got a wassail and then you could go into the spring if you were following say the Celtic calendar you know you've got in bulk and you've got samain in the um, which is our kind of like all Hallows' Day really you know the um, Halloween um, and all of these times of years and these festivals um, I would love it if we if we kind of incorporated these celebrations with, Seasonality in food and cooking, and particular recipes, and you know, there's a massive, there's loads of examples of these that take place through the year. But I don't think that the vast majority of people, and um, myself included, um, have these within our life. And I think they're just so important. Um, and they also help us to to repeat recipes and to you know refine recipes and pass recipes on and um, using ingredients that are grown here um, and that are seasonal. And um, yeah, I'd I'd love it if that was more, more a part of our life. I think I think more and more people are revisiting these traditions. Or you know, like for instance, I noticed that Boss Morris, which is this Morris Morris dancing troupe from um, um, their own like Nailsworth, not far from Bristol, they've they just supported Wet Leg at the Brits, so dance behind them, and I was like, that is amazing. Who thought that Morris dancing would become cool again and it is. And I think it's, um It's always been cool. I don't understand.
0: <laughs> what do you mean? Make it, it always been <laughs> let's, let's list what's cool about it, right? Oh, come you on, get, you, get to hit, you get to hit each other with big sticks, right? Yeah. You get to you get to tie bells to your legs. Yeah. Right? You get to mostly perform at pubs. Yeah, okay, you drinking beer be is pretty much part of the gig. Now Come on, mate. There's, there's, that's all pretty cool there. And actually, I've got another one, actually, um, but I, I, do, I do totally agree with you. I think it's fantastic that these folk traditions coming back and making them mainstream, and then they'll reinvent, and that's part of the folk tradition, you know, reasserting itself and going forward. Um, I, I, I love Burns Night up here, uh, having yeah, moved yeah. to Scotland, become much more into Burns Night, and, you know, that celebration of making the haggis and, and reading, the, reading the Ode to the haggis, you know, and getting involved with that whole thing is is brilliant. And that's not an ancient tradition, you know, but uh, but it, but it's well celebrated here. I, I th- I'm sure there'll be some better examples. People will be emailing me as soon as we go live to air with this episode to go, there's lots of other ones, Tim, that you've failed to mention. Um, but yeah, I, I can't find a single thing to argue with you about. We should definitely have more ritual meals. But on the, as a charge for that, I would like to get rid of Christmas
1: turkey. Yeah, I, yeah, completely. I don't think I've had turkey for years. I mean, as soon as I left home and, you know, we started doing Christmases ourselves, like the turkey yeah. was, no, no, no offense to turkey. You know, you can cook turkey in a lovely way and they're lovely little birds. Well, they're not very little, they're massive, aren't they? But, um, <laughs> you know, not knocking turkey for sure, but... We just don't need to be cooking that here. And um yeah, I, I much prefer I mean it's I much prefer kind of wild birds or or even a to, to be honest, chicken. There's a recipe yep. in the cook in the vermouth um in my book which um I think it might have started life um at brawn which is this wicked restaurant in London. Um Ed Wilson. Ed Wilson I might get his name wrong. Yep. Um but it came via Sicily, my friend who lives in um sicily cooked this for me when i was here when i was there with her last and um you basically cook you cook a whole bird um quite a high heat to start with but you you have half a bottle of wine big glug of um stock and um a big piece of or a few pieces of buttered sourdough which you nice. which you put underneath the bird and then you cook it with a cook it covered loads of onions and carrots and rosemary and garlic and um and then you take you take the lid off and cook it um, and you end up with this sort of chickeny, fried, sticky, bread, meaty thing oh, to eat with the chicken. <laughs> it was delicious! Yeah, I want that. I don't want a turkey.
0: Yeah. No, no. Oh, well, let's make that our food tradition. Let, let, we need to invent <laughs> a day for that to happen as as the feast. Um, and it's interesting how some of them have been a bit, a bit corrupted and perhaps over-marketed. Like, um, I won't choose an obvious one, but Easter Easter is associated with lamb. But to have you yeah, know, young mad. lamb at Easter means you have to you know you have to lamb your sheep indoors in December or January. Um to get them to the right slaughter weight for Easter. So it doesn't really make any sense to me. So either either it's a sort of echo of the old um Pyrenean tradition of killing one of the twin lambs at, you know, sort of two to three weeks old and eating it as you know, as a, as a very young milk-fed lamb, the idea being that the winters are so harsh they can only get one lamb each to the level of fitness it needs to be at before they can go and graze in the mountains for the rest of the winter. So they kill any twins that are born at an early age for a secondary crop to ensure the survival of the flock. So it's not actually the twisted evil thing that everyone thinks it is. Right, so it's either sort of a derivative of that or people used to eat mutton at Easter and that somehow... Been translated uh, into you must now have lamb at Easter, but the spike yeah. in lamb value at, at market, of, you know, two weeks before Easter, is astonishing, and that's why lots of farmers have channeled their lamb production in that way. But you end up with quite boring lamb that doesn't really taste of much because it's lived indoors and been weaned on cake.
1: But wasn't isn't it something to do with um, wasn't it something to do with the um, advertising um, or the, the marketing of New Zealand lamb, and they. Um, I think also, I think, I think you've, the two points there, it's one of those kind of, it's all, there's always multiple reasons, isn't there, as mm. to why something ends up. You know, there's, there's the traditions of it that kind of drift through. But I think also it was to do with New Zealand land being marketed um, in supermarkets. Um, but obviously it's been, a, you know, it's been a tradition for quite a long time, isn't it? So yeah, I wonder where
0: it came from as well. I mean, what would it originally have been? Because before Christianity came gallivanting along, I mean, the word Easter is supposed to come from Oestra, which was a, a kind of, I think, a, a kind of um, Germanic fairy sprite who was the harbinger of spring, uh, who had a hair familiar. So, I, And then I think Easter sort of coincided, you know, the, the sacrifice of God's son and whatnot. And I think there's some yeah. land-based symbolism in the Catholic faith around Easter as well so I wonder if that's a kind of another yeah. tool that they use to cra- crowbar that in there I expect someone I, will write it and, and give me the lowdown um, well, I went
1: down a rabbit hole once because I because obviously <laughs> you, you know we, we've got this idea of well fertility I think the big thing with Easter is is you've got first of all you've got the you've got the an egg the egg and the, and and what's now become sort of the bunny Easter bunny which is ridiculous because yeah. it's 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 a hare, isn't it really that's yeah, where that's yeah, that's yeah. where it's come from and um i got really obsessed with this um actually i wrote uh, um uh, tim hayward um the food writer who um Love him had... or hate him <laughs> yeah yeah i mean um yeah he he had a book um well it was like a series of magazines called fire and knives um which yeah. was my first he gave me my first writing break and i wrote an article basically oh, about, about um the Symbol of the three hairs, which really weirdly is this kind of. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's there's three hairs and they're and each of their ears is makes a triangle basically, Absolutely. they like yeah. they, they link together. And yeah. you find you find the symbol in churches, um, and on stones, um, that that follow essentially follows like the Silk Road, um, and then it sort of ends, you end, you end up in Ch- maybe Chag, I think Chagford's got got one in the church there um and that that obviously has the you see that within the celtic tradition the triangle and it's got a name uh, i can't it's not it's not like tricolor because that's the that's the um the lights on a boat um but it's or the tricolor um but it, it follows that same kind of celtic um celtic iconography and um i don't know where i'm going with this <laughs>
0: Well, it doesn't matter it was brilliant i, bas- chat. I basically just chat want to tell you space. that I'm, re- I'm
1: really interested in the the symbol of three hairs because yeah okay. um
0: but- <laughs> <laughs> but- <laughs> well so, so more they- ceremony and ritual in food as long yeah. as and we're going to put this in brackets then because i've amended your point as long as it's not a fake marketing ceremony slash ritual of yeah. the food. Yeah, okay, cool. Oh, I like Definitely. that point. I like that point <laughs> a lot. Um I really like it in fact. Um yes, and I, and I do get it. I get it. I mean, one of my first experiences in professional kitchens was uh, was working for Alistair Little. Oh, he he sadly passed away last year, but yeah. um, in 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 um, Lancaster Road in his lesser known eponymous restaurant uh, in Notting Hill there. And when I was there a fantastic sous chef uh, at the time, brilliant head chef called Tony Abano great guy, really, really amazing, passionate foodie, um, one of the most understated, brilliant cooks I've ever worked with. And Luigi, who was an insane product of Italy, <laughs> yeah. who was the sous chef, and uh, and was was rigorously furious about nearly everything. Uh, and I, I remember, you know, him talking about various traditions, and you know, you mustn't do this. And he used to put uh, copper coins in the pan when it was boiling. Um, when he was boiling uh, octopuses or octopi uh it was you know all sorts of strange stuff uh but anyway yeah I, i'm with you i think more tradition more ceremony more ritual and food is a good thing let's let's go with it um well right, you've only got one thing left
1: uh right one one more um i would like to see i'd love to see not to like i'd love to see more um links um, between farms, food production producers and schools and universities. Um, Satish Kumar makes, uh, he's actually, there's a really good podcast. Um, I don't want to take people away from your, your podcast at all, but um, <laughs> there isn't anyone listening anyway, Jack. <laughs> um, Satish actually talked about this fairly recently on um, at the Oxford Real Farming Conference and um, just how important it is to get people into gardens, into farms, um, to kind of have that direct connection with the soil, um, you know, to rate, to lower those cortisol levels, which, which actually happens as soon as you put your hands in soil. Um, like we're made, we're made for it. And we're supposed to have this connection with the land. Um, and so often we don't. And, um, my partner, um, Els and I, um, both worked, um, and lived at Jamie's farm, which is this amazing charity. They've got five farms, um, it's sort of run by uh, mother and son, um, Trish and Jamie Fielding, um, and they came from the kind of perspective of a um, teacher from an inner city school and um, a psychotherapist and farmer. And they brought they bring um, young people to, to to farms for kind of often a week um, a week to um, work in the farm to kind of cook for each other to sit down and talk about. How they're feeling, what's going on for them, um, and to basically be really tired from kind of manual labour and to look after other things and other beings and, and plants and animals, and, and and to kind of take that focus away from the individual and more to the group and to the environment. And um, seeing how um, you've got like young people that are having a really really hard time, and um, you know at the farm they continue to get people um, young people that are kind of they they might be they might be in care or they might be in a position where they're likely to be excluded from um, from school Um, and you see them come with their teachers or their carers or their um, support workers for um, for some time at the farm and just like how they relax and how getting up in the morning and going out and feeding the pigs and um, working in the garden And coming back and having breakfast like seeing how they respond to that um and how much how much more supported they feel and just at peace is is amazing and i think having that when they go back to their schools there are lots of schools that do have um some form of garden or they might have chickens um but it isn't really really integrated you know it's like it depends on the head, it depends on the local authority it depends on funding you know there's places like hackney school of food uh there are there are a couple of schools out there that have almost an entire entirely food dedicated syllabus in which they teach maths and um you know science and other parts of the of the um, curriculum through food you know so that might be measures it might be um you know the reaction that happens in food when you cook it um Mm -hmm. or when you ferment it and i think Integrating that more into education, both, uh, both uh, you know, um, higher education and in schools and nurseries is like it's how we're going to is how we're going to beat the obesity um, problems is how we're going to kind of ensure that kids understand and want to protect, um, you know, the, the, the environment or their environment, you know, and want to kind of get involved in community projects. And mm. that's mm. that's what I would really love to. See happen. Um, well, I you think you
0: put it in a really good way. I mean, we've had this with various different titles. We've had the same point a, a few times. You know, greater create greater connectivity between producers and education. Greater greater food learning at school. And actually, I think often that, that that sort of is perceived as oh, we need to have a food lesson, or you need you know we need to get kids cooking at school. And I, I don't I don't doubt that that's definitely part of the part of the case. Um, but I like the way that you've put it. Can you give it a title for me that, that will suit my show notes nicely? What would you call your point number
1: three? Oh, that's a really good point. I mean, um, it's it's a hard one because it's it's such a it's such a it's such a huge area to name. Yeah. Be, for yeah. instance, you've got at the moment a lot of schools um, are obviously working with a. Um, Large, often multinational business that they have a contract the local authority will have a contract with, so that they, they have to buy you know they're not allowed to buy anything from anyone else because they've signed right. a contract with this particular com- company so there right? there, there's, there was there was a um a mum in a school near us in where we were living. We were kind of near Totnes, Dartmoor before we moved up here, and she wasn't she wasn't allowed to bring in potatoes or carrots or anything that had been grown in the allotments and gardens. And, you know, the people that she knew and that, and that she'd grown herself, she wasn't allowed to bring those in. So she was, because they had a contract with, you know, the company that was supplying them with their like smiley potato smileys. And,
0: yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah. and so she was smuggling, you know, she was like smuggling carrots and potatoes and greens and <clears throat> starting to cook with them and stuff. And, I don't know. I mean, Jamie Oliver. What, what's I mean? I suppose it's in level. It's like food. It's like food education. But I don't know what do you what what do you call this? Because it's actually a it's a it's almost a paradigm shift, isn't it? It's it's reimagining how we interact with food within educational spaces. Oh,
0: we've you got say it. That. You reimagine, say that. reimagine. So I've got to write it down. I'm quite slow at writing. Reimagine the ways we interact with food and education
1: is that right have I got it right yeah I think so I mean I just yeah that just came out of my mouth so that's oh,
0: genius I like that so often the the best things do come and you can't find the name for them suddenly it arrives oh brilliant brilliant yeah I as, it, as you say it is multifaceted and very deep I mean I quite like the idea of your friend uh, or the mum in Totnes you know being prepared to go to i mean that is literally you cannot sell you cannot offer the children fresh carrots you must use the potato smileys well <laughs> take me to court you know arrest me <laughs> i'm a vegetable i'm a vegetable gorilla warfareist, and i'm gonna make gonna at least offer the kids some fresh vegetables that aren't fried in refined sunflower oil Brilliant, um, I like her a lot. Uh, and I, and I, I sort of think that's, you know, you've got the biggest responsibility now as the parent because evolving your kids in the kitchen and getting them into cooking is really down to you not not stopping their interest. They start off interested. So as long as you allow them, you know, and it's painful at times because you're like, the, the three-year-old daughter wants to chop the bananas and make a fruit salad and you're like, just clear off. I can do it in a minute and then you know it will be done and there won't be mess everywhere sorry can i stop
1: can i stop you there bananas in a fruit salad oh Oh, that's that's (laughs) absolutely falling
0: listen at three years old if it's easy to chop it goes in the fruit salad I'm not a big fan of bananas, anyway. So uh, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think the part of that responsibility is at home as well as as is in the educational settings. But I do totally get where you're coming from, and we definitely need more integration of local produce into um, food provided by our institutions. It's insane that you would have a contract with, uh, you know, with a, an international supplier of some sort when. You know, you live in the biggest carrot production area of the world, or something. It just seems mad, doesn't
1: it? Absolutely, yeah.
0: Tastes brilliant. It. Well, Jack, unsurprisingly, you've given some brilliant chat there. We've had some good points. Um, you're, you know, you're definitely singing from the correct song sheet, as far as I'm concerned. And you've made a, a glorious and noble contribution to the uh, the digital hist, you know, the digital catalogue. It is the Madam's car, so I'm, I'm pleased that you've come on and echoed some thoughts and, and shared your own take on a few ideas. Um, you've got a, a few tasks left to perform before I boot you out of the digital recording studio, uh, but they're much more laid back. You know, it's not as intense as the previous three. You've done the difficult bit, but remaining to you are the tasks. One You need to choose a food book, and this is the hardest one, you need to choose a food book that you could not live without. It is effectively your desert island food book, okay? A drink to sip whilst reading it, and then you get to nominate somebody else as a future guest of the Madam's Cast. They can be alive, dead, real, fictitious, whatever you want. They don't have to come on even if they're alive and real. It's not like you're committing them to a contract of any kind, it's just a suggestion scenario. So. Did you Where say they, I... can,
1: they can be dead?
0: They can be dead, yeah. I mean, I like the idea of, of figures from history being suggested, although it does make it difficult for me to <laughs> recruit them. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what, I'll give you two. I'll give you two. I'll do one. Dead oh, right. Right. okay. okay, yeah. okay. Well,
0: let, let's start with the book because that's usually the one that gives everyone the most challenge. You're not allowed to list the 94 books that you would have chosen. I might let you have a top three
1: okay yeah top three let me do top the thing is when I didn't realize it was a food well I've I've definitely got lots of food books but um I've got yeah two of the books didn't have anything to do with food so I must have misread that um but it's a food podcast isn't it of course it's going to be a food book um I would go for um probably Morrow East cookbook Yeah. yeah it's um yeah it's um I think it's looking at it now I think it was like 2007 it came out so um it kind of I don't, if you got it you must do
0: I've got one of the morrow cookbooks I can't remember which one it is and it's not in my office it's in the library so I can't I said the library <laughs> I mean the shelf in the kitchen <laughs> so uh, I don't want you I don't want you imagining I live in some kind of multi-story grand palace here where I have a library um but so it's not it's not here yeah, i don't know if it was easter it sounds like
1: it might be so yeah. it's basically yeah it, it it looks so sam and sam who um i've been very lucky to work with over the years have done some events and um eating in their restaurants um lots and i and i absolutely love them and um for me this book came out when i was i was probably 20 something and mm-hmm. had just gone to university and, um, my mum, my mum got, my mum had got it. I think it was one of the first cookbooks that I properly just read again and again and again. And yeah, yeah. it's the premise for it is, is it was, um, it was based around the recipes, obviously that they cooked in Moro and that they kind of gathered from, you know, their travels, both living in Andalusia and also, um, Morocco and, um, mm-hmm. North Africa. And, um, it's, it's actually the allotment, which is, where they based the book they went and spoke to um there was like cypriots there was, there was turkish people they would um grow like loads and loads of their veggies veggies for home and um sam and sam would kind of gather the recipes from these communities and um and put them into this book and um it's it's got things like um goes you know the um like a stuffed turkish flatbread that you you kind of you roll out with a really big rolling pin and then you cook them on a flat griddle Oh, um, so, and is... their flatbread recipe is, is the recipe that I I use all the time it's just so, it just works so well and they've got things like uh, Mansaf which is like a Jordanian um, yogurt and saffron broth um, which yeah. it's just loads of things, I remember looking at this when I, when I was younger and it was just like That's, that sounds mental, I've never had anything like that now it's obviously been more and more integrated into our cooking particularly with people like Ottolenghi who have brought foods from all over the world, but particularly Middle East, um, to yeah. our to our tables. But and Moro, of course, have too. But mm-hmm. the book's completely shot um, on film by Toby Glanville, and I've used it as a as a as a reference for um, photography. I'm not. I, I will say now, because I know you introduced me as a photographer. I'm not a photographer. I I direct photography um, for um, food and drink. So I am. Um, not amazing at taking pictures myself. I'm very good at telling people the kind of picture that I want and being there when it happens.
0: Good um, for you.
1: <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm looking now at a, such a beautiful. There's some peppers that are being barbecued um, on a grill, and it it's a the allotment was um, on the River Lee, on the Grand Union Canal. It's actually gone now because the the Olympic um, development um,
0: flattened it. Is that the Lee Valley? Yeah. I used to live at the end of Copper Mill Lane, which is um, which is in Walthamstow, which is at the other yeah. end of the Lee, Valley, if you like. So we used to wander mm-hmm. down to the Lee Valley Park in the early mornings and watch the sun come up underneath the willow trees. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, it's, um... Right, I have totally digressed. Okay, so I, I, I'm totally aware that I've told you the wrong thing about the books. I didn't forewarn you that they were food books. So the other oh. two, if you want to mention two others that aren't food books, I'd be interested to hear what it is you've been reading.
1: Well, they're still they they're, they're still I think they're tied with landscape and to a certain extent food. Um, yeah. I suppose we could crowbar that in.
0: Um, well, just briefly, give them to me. Just tell me what they are. Give me four words about each one, something like that. Just, just
1: okay. It. Okay. So, um, Island Years by um, Frank Fraser Darling. It's called Island Years. Um, the I think it's called Farm Year Island Years, Farm Years by Frank Fraser Darling, and it's 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 by an environmentalist, um, and he went and, um, lived, uh, on the summer isles with his family in the 1930s. And, uh, and actually was on one of the islands on the summer isles, which are basically the islands north of Ullapool. Um, okay. and he lived on there and he was kind of monitoring seal, gray seal and, um, seabird populations. Um, but he took his, his wife and his, and his child and they lived, lived in a bell tent and they built a little cabin and they lived on about three different islands and it's, it's just an account of his experience and, um, you know taking they they took some sheep, they took a few sheep with them, which they then um, which they they grazed and then they ate while they were there. they were there for like the whole like three winters. It's just amazing. the most amazing account of of just hard people and you just think you know I, I, you know i I get sometimes upset if the hot water doesn't come out and these guys didn't have like didn't wash for like five years. and I think um I just think we've all got a bit too soft and you read books yeah. like this and you're just like bloody hell. These guys were amazing, and doing okay. something. Okay, what really was the other one? New. The other one is "Sit uh, uh, the Sea People" by um, David Thompson. Let me just double check before I. Um, yeah, The people of the sea, and it's um, it's basically a, a guy again. I think it's 1950s. Travels around the west coast of Ireland um, and to the Outer Hebrides, um, and is documenting stories. Um, that revolve around the Selkie or the Seal people, um, and it's just again uh, there is food elements in it, and there's, there's there's like a an account of like laying the fire, and I I, I can't remember the exact details of it, but um, Gallic communities and communities on the uh, and uh, Gallic and Gaelic communities on the west on the west coast of Ireland was each night they lay the fire they lay the fire for the next morning and and it was like again it was the triangle they they do like three things which invoke some sort of kind of catholic tradition like christian tradition but mm. but also had kind of elements that go back to kind of yeah pre christian um celtic traditions of of kind of blessing the fire for the next day and um Amazing. there's lots of recipes in it and people eating crazy stuff and it's such a beautiful book um,
0: right get that as well or at least look it up so Morrow East is your choice of book yeah. and it's a yeah. very fine one uh, very yeah. glad to hear that listed um, what are you going to drink while you're flicking through it
1: you see I didn't I didn't think about this because okay. I, I want to just say something off the top of my head because yeah obviously my, a lot of my life is is drinks so I would immediately be like well what am I doing I'm sitting you know is it the evening is it the morning yeah. I mean I shouldn't be well, drinking in the morning because that's wrong you can choose um I would say, I think one of my favorite drinks that we served at at the Epicurean um, and is in the cookbook is, um, it's Pedro Jimenez, which is, uh, sweet sherry or in the UK, it was Harvey's Bristol cream. That is Pedro Jimenez. So if anyone starts talking about PX and you think, God, they're fancy, just remember that granny, you, you granny drinking a little glass of Harvey's Bristol cream is the same stuff. It's just called something else. Um, so i really like mixing that with bourbon and then um smoking it um and you, you if you haven't got a smoker i've actually started messing about with hall and mon the anglesey sea salt company yeah a brilliant product it's so good um we actually sailed to um anglesey last you know two years ago um from the west coast of scotland on, on our way down to cornwall and, and, and stopped in in, um, in Holyhead. It's such a cool place. They make um, they smoke um, salt, which is fantastic. But they also make a kind of smoked water, oak smoked okay. water, and you can use that. You could use that. You know, put a few drops of that in if you fancy not. Don't fancy actually smoking the drink, but that for me is just so amazing in the evening because it's got the you've got the sweetness of, of the bourbon and the whiskey. Uh, sorry, the bourbon and the Pedro Jimenez, and then you introduce that bit of smoke. And it's just like a great digestive, I think. Sounds if delicious. Really post give dinner. it a go. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. It's got all the elements there of a, of a, you know, of a, of an old fashioned really, the bourbon and the sweetness from the PX and the exactly. smoke on the top. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. Awesome. And bourbon. I have,
1: I have heard a few people, um, using, um, and I've done it using PX in a, in an old fashioned instead of, instead of sugar, um, it works really well often you get whiskies and matured in in sherry barrels too yeah um, yeah
0: absolutely either you know either either new oak or sherry barrels uh, particularly on space they like a sherry barrel um yeah big big importers of those okay uh, fascinating stuff right and who who are you going to nominate then let's have a nomination out of you jack
1: oh bloody hell this is really hard um i uh, <laughs> I'd love it if you could get Frank Fraser, darling, but I think he's passed away. So okay. that's not very useful. Um, and then I, I, I've just been down to um, Inver restaurant. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half from Glasgow, Loch Fyne, near Loch Lomond. And um, I hope I've said that right. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, uh, and I went to Inver and it's amazing. And the head chef there um, who runs the restaurant with a partner, Rob, is Pam Brunton. Um, and I think she would be amazing to, to get on the podcast. they 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 worked before they were at Inver, Inver, they, they've worked in, um, Favican, um, in Sweden, which is now closed and they were at Noma, um, and Inderwolf in Belgium and they brought lots of amazing techniques from, from all over the world they, you know, they looked at the kind of new Scandinavian food movement and they've come back and they've looked at Scottish food culture and food production. And they're incorporating those, some of the techniques that they've learned, but also using the ingredients, you know, like, um, the, um, barley from that's been grown on Orkney. Um, that's oh, very yeah. much like the grains we would have, we would have had up here. Um, yes, I
0: was reading about it when we were in Orkney last summer, I'm desperately rifling through my mate. We've got a painting here somewhere, which is, is it Emma? It's not Emma. It's, but it's like Emma.
1: Yeah. Um, I can't I've got I've, I've got a pic, I've got a picture of a ram. they their their branding is like a ram, which is okay. a particular a particular sheep from like an Orkney um or- Orcadian breed of sheep.
0: Yeah. Well, I think pound's been nominated before and actually I think she agreed to come on and then just due to my terrible administrational skills, I think it all fell apart. So hopefully we can get her to agree to come back on and, and, and we'll, we'll line her up and that would be a, a brilliant little link in the chain for the Madam's cast. Great. Nice one. Brilliant. Well Jack, all that remains really is for me to thank you for your time um, because I know you're a busy man and, uh, and having just moved and moved house and with a one year old child and everything going on, um, you'll be all over the place so I really appreciate you taking the time to come and join me for a little while across the digital interweb um, and and put some thoughts down as digital audio files to share with the world. It's, um, it's a great thing. Thank you very much.
1: Pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: No worries. Where can we find out more about you? I'll put a link to your book in the show notes, uh, but I, I mean, presumably you're on uh, Insta and Twitter and stuff like that. Give us your handles. Not-
1: not on twitter but um yeah jack a bevan on instagram and then um my website um jackadarebevan.com has got um yeah lots of lots of the work that i do with um food and drink businesses lots of the photography that i work on and um you know writing and books and things are all out there um so yeah those are two good places to start and please yeah please buy the book um, it's <laughs> it available it. in all, all good
0: bookshops oh um, definitely, definitely I'm sure you know you're going to get a massive surge in online sales uh, your publisher will be phoning you demanding a reprint before, before the month is out there's no doubt about it such is the incredible marketing power of the Madam's cast um, you know huge thanks Jack for coming on enjoy um, your new adventures in Scotland and I look forward to bumping into you very soon thanks for coming on thank you bye see ya